And then I'll just uh, I'll open us with a little bit of prayer. Oh, loving Lord, we, we ask you that you would work through your word today, that you would help me to be clear and accurate, help my own heart to be uh, encouraged through your word, that you would encourage all of us today, that you would convict us where we need it, comfort, it, comfort us where we need it, cause us to love you and worship you more through the hearing and, and exhortation of your word. Amen. So I'm going to read Psalm 33, verses 6 through 9 for you. It says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. This is the Lord's word we'll be considering today. Well, in 1715, the hymn, I Sing the Mighty Power of God, which was originally called Praise for Creation and Providence uh, by Isaac Watts, was published. And it was originally intended as part of a a children's hymn assortment. Uh, Watts knew that the God, that God was sovereign, omnipresent, and the good creator of all. He knew the implications of that and sought to teach those truths by way of song to the upcoming generation and generations beyond that. And Watts knew that God knows every, as the hymn says, plant or flower and controls all of nature. And in fact, in the third stanza of the hymn, he says, the tempests blow by order from thy throne. Even the foulest weather, he knew, was ordained and controlled by God. And the knowledge that his God created and controlled everything drove Watts to write a hymn of praise and worship. It flowed out of a heart of praise and worship. He wanted the reality of the true and living creator God as opposed to the dead idols planted firmly in the minds of his generation and again generations to come. He wanted this truth about God, which caused him to worship, to bring others to the same conclusion. And while this hymn wasn't written about Psalm 33, it does speak about the same truths and the same God that Psalm 33 speaks about, teaches about. And when you, when you look at all God's created and his control over his creation, does it, does it drive you to worship him like it did Isaac Watts and the psalmist? many thousands of years before him? What about, what about when those tempests of life blow? Tempests aren't spring breezes. They're intense. They're difficult. It could be long-lasting. Do you still worship him in response to that? God's people are and have always been characterized by God-centered worship, God-centered fear, and God-centered praise. And in Psalm 33, God's people, the righteous ones, are called to sing a praise hymn to the Lord. This psalm expresses a profound awareness of and a deep gratitude for God's abundant blessings. It praises God for who he is and what he does. Psalm 33 is a victory psalm. It's actually a shout that would have taken place after victory and warfare. 
And the structure of the psalm is one of perfect symmetry, and we would expect no less from God's word. In the first three verses of the psalm, the psalmist bursts out onto the scene with joyful seeing that reminds us of our privilege and our responsibility to rejoice in the Lord. And in the last three verses of the psalm, his praise climaxes with a heart that is resolute to rejoice in the Lord. The body of the psalm, which is where we'll be today, gives the remarkable reasons he rejoiced in the Lord. And beloved, the same God that created and controlled the earth then controls the earth now. Nothing's changed throughout the millennia. His word is just as powerful now as it was then. He is as worthy to be worshipped now as he was then. And if God's people worshipped him back then because of those facts that never changed, we should worship now for the same reason. And to that end, our portion of Psalm 33 gives us four truths declaring the Lord's power and authority in and over creation to cause us to worship him. And so here's your outline. There's four verses, four truths, and they all start with you must worship the Lord. So the first one, verse 6, you must worship the Lord because of his word. Verse 7, number 2, you must worship the Lord because of his power. Number 3, because of his expectation, and that's in verse 8. And then number 4 in verse 9, you must worship the Lord because of his control. So because of his word, because of his power, because of his expectation, and because of his, because of his control. So we'll just take these here one at a time. Look with me at verse 6. For the first reason, you must worship the Lord. It's because of the Lord's word. And verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So this is the first worship-inducing truth, and it's displayed through the Lord's instrument of creation. And his instrument that he used was his word. Our Lord made the heavens and their hosts by simply speaking. And look at the phrase here in verse 6, the first phrase. It says, by the word of the Lord. This phrase is constructed in order to demonstrate the origin of the divine instrument. The instrument of creation is a spoken word, and the eternal maestro who so perfectly wields that instrument is none other than the Lord. He didn't use a tool like we use to create. Uh, he didn't use a big bang like some say. The text says that the Lord used his spoken word as the intangible instrument of creation through which he made the tangible. The Lord is so authoritative and so powerful that a mere word from him made absolutely everything in our physical reality begin to exist. The psalmist here is clearly referring back to the creation account. We can all turn there in Genesis 1. Back to Genesis 1 with me. This is no doubt in the psalmist's mind. I'll just kind of run through these. In, uh, <clears throat> in Genesis 1.1, it says that God created the heavens and the earth. So there's the creator, pretty clear. In verse 3, it says, God speaks light into existence. Verse 4, God starts the cycle of days with 
the creation of light before the stars were made. Verse 5, the proto-earth starts rotating on its axis. Verse 6, God speaks into existence the sky into the middle of the waters which divided them. Verse 7 and 8, he makes the atmosphere and outer space. Verse 9, God speaks dry land into existence. Verse 11, it's vegetation. Verses 14 through 16, it's the sun, moon, the stars, to which he attaches the light of verse 3. And verses 20 through 21, it's all sea and air creatures. 24 through 25, it's all land animals. In verse 26, it's the crown jewel of God's creation, man. I'm exhausted just reading about what God did it on those six days. You can go back to Psalm 33. This would have been in the psalmist's mind very clearly. The Lord created absolutely everything in the microcosm and the macrocosm of our reality with just his word. Look at the second half of verse 6 with me. It says, And by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. The psalmist here is drawing our attention to the subject, which is the Lord. Now, why is he doing that? Well, he wanted to make sure that we focus on who is performing the creating. The creator wasn't some pagan god. It was the Lord, the God of Israel. Second reason was for climactic purposes. His point was that the Lord's word and nothing else made everything appear out of nothing, and that is pretty climactic if you ask me. How many of us could make something out of nothing? None of us. The vast and seemingly unlimited expanse of outer space and all its incalculable number of celestial bodies appeared by means of a mere word, a mere breath from the Lord. And I found this interesting, speaking to the enormity of God's creation, Did you know that uh, in 2013, so that's a recent study, scientists estimate that there are at least 200 billion galaxies in existence and possibly more filled with around 10 to the 24th power planets. That's the number 10 with, with 24 zeros behind it. It's a staggering amount. In 2016, an article about NASA's study regarding the number of galaxies says this. The number of galaxies are much more than what humans originally thought. Well, I guess so. It sounds like it. Christopher Consolis, an astrophysics professor at the University of Nottingham in England, and the lead author of NASA's study, said, We are missing the vast majority of galaxies because they are very faint and far away. And he goes on to say, Over 90% of the galaxies in the cosmos have yet to be studied. In fact, Astronomers using NASA's Hubble Space Telescope have discovered that the universe is expanding, and you'll see why I emphasized that a little bit later, and it's doing so by 5 to 9% faster than expected. So the universe is enormous and it's getting bigger. In 2017, when asked how many stars existed, David Cornrich, an assistant professor at Ithaca College in New York State and founder of the Ask an Astronomer Service at Cornell University said this, and I really appreciate the honesty in his answer. Here's his answer about how many stars existed, word for word. I don't know because I don't know if the universe is infinitely large or not. He's honest. Our created reality is so large and it's beyond comprehension that 
Even today's scientists, with all of their advanced equipment and accumulated knowledge, fail to grasp the extent, the full extent of the created universe. But this demonstrates exactly what God said in his word long ago. You might remember Isaiah 40, verse 22. It says, God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. The universe is expanding. God, God's people have known this for thousands of years. I could have at least given that to him for half the price of the study that they used at NASA. And I still would. God's word told us this long ago. Job 26, 13 through 14, tells us that God created the constellations by his breath, brought them all under subjection to himself, and that our knowledge of the created universe is only a glimpse or the fringes of his way, and we would say, now I really understand why David Cornish says, I don't know because I don't know, because scripture says it's, the whole universe is just the fringes of his way, and that's even beyond our comprehension. Our Lord made all of this, all of this. His word created the land you live on, the planet that land is located on, the solar system this planet is located in, the galaxy containing millions of other solar systems this solar system is located in, and the universe containing billions of those galaxies. A mere word from the Lord made all of that in six days. I don't know about you, but this is absolutely astounding to me, the the authority and the ability that the Lord has and that he used to create. The psalmist here is full of praise for the Lord and is overjoyed because his God is the one who made the heavens and their host. His God is the Lord, the creative and sovereign word-wielding God of all reality. The Lord spoke his creation, his creation, into existence. The Lord's words are never empty and always accomplish his purposes in creation and salvation. In eternity, the Lord willed to create our physical reality and spoke it into existence, ex nihilo, which is out of nothing. This truth led the psalmist to worship and adore his God, and it should lead us to do the same because he's our God too. Does it? He's the only God. He's the creating God. His authority and ability to speak our reality in all its intricacy and its expanse into existence ought to cause you to worship him. How many times do you look around just at the creation and your heart sings to the Lord because you know that he's created it? He's in control of all of it. If it doesn't, it ought to. Then, let us consider verse 7. And that's speaking about the Lord's power. It's number 2. Verse 7, read with me, it says, He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Well, this is the second worship-inducing truth, and it's displayed through the Lord's power During the creation process, the Lord's unparalleled creative power was demonstrated in in staggering fashion. We're going to look at that. Look at me again at the first clause. It says, he gathers the waters of the sea, in verse 7, together. The Hebrew word, which we translate as gathers, 
It implies progressive action in the past, and that action was directed towards an object. And, and it's amazing that you know this because it gives us a glimpse directly into the past. If you ever wanted a window into the past, here it is. This is a window into the Lord's creation process. It lets us see exactly what he did when he was creating our planet that we're living on today. The psalmist says that at one point during the creation of the earth, the Lord's action was toward the earth's waters as he literally gathered them all up. And then he tells us in, into what manner the sea waters were gathered. Amazingly, they were gathered like a heap or as a heap. And I, I can't even imagine what that was like. Have you ever tried to gather water into a heap? That doesn't work. The water doesn't listen to us. The psalmist here is vividly recounting Genesis 1-9, which gives the historical facts that God gathered the earth's waters right before he fashioned the dry land, and he's telling us how God did that. And, and so I want us to think about how astoundingly powerful this act actually is. And, and this is just on, on the scale of our planet. This isn't the rest of the universe. Let's consider how much water here this is talking about. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, there are over 332,519,000 cubic miles of water on the planet. I don't know how they gauged all that, but that's what they say. This, this really is an awesome amount of water to simply gather as a heap. And, and to help us grasp the magnitude of that measurement, think about this. A cubic mile of water is, is basically 5,280 feet in every direction. So 5,280 feet deep in every direction. So, so we take that huge body of water, and now we add 332,500,000 more of them together. Then we could, we could stretch those end to end, uh, those one-mile-deep cubes of water, and there would be enough of, the, of that water to reach all the way to the moon and halfway back. That's how much water is on the planet. That is the amount of water the Lord gathered effortlessly into a heap. And, and uh, we're concerned whether or not he can help us through the day. God is amazingly powerful, and this act in no way even stresses that power. Okay, so we know the Lord gathered the seas as a heap, but where exactly did he put them once he gathered them? And I, and I, and I wondered this for many years in my life, how this all worked. The psalmist here positively identifies the location in the second half of verse 7. He says, he lays up the deeps in storehouses. And when he says deeps, that's just synonymous for waters of the sea. Same thing. So the Lord took the waters of the sea and put them into storehouses. Okay. All right. So the next question is, where are the storehouses that he put these waters into? And there's... Many differing ideas concerning these storehouses, but I, I think if we just stick with the text here, um, I, th I think the answer will become pretty clear to us. The text and, and other texts. Uh, the Hebrew word for storehouses, it, it's not uncommon in the Old Testament. And you don't have to worry about writing all these references down. I'm just going to run through them real quick. In, ne in Nehemiah 12.44, it means supplies. 
In 13.12, it means storehouses. In 1 Kings 7.51, it speaks about treasure, especially of uh, a palace or temple. In a cosmic sense, in Deuteronomy 28.12, it's the treasure house of the Lord in heaven out of which, uh, out of which blessings flow. In Jeremiah 10.13, 51.13, and Psalm 135.7, it's identified as the storehouse where the wind is kept and, and then where it, from where it comes. In Jeremiah 50.25, reference is made to it as God's armory. And in Job 38.22, it's identified as the storehouse where God keeps the snow and hail as an instrument of judgment. Considering these references, putting them all together, it seems that simple observation leads us to a clear conclusion as to the location of the storehouses. The Lord's storehouses are located in the heavens. And you're like, well, that doesn't tell me a whole lot more, so we'll go just a little bit further. The heavens, in in this sense, is contained in what we call, what we now know to be called, the Earth's troposphere. And uh, since that's where the rain, the wind, the snow, and the hail come from, and that's where it's accumulated, in the troposphere. Furthermore, the storehouse's function, its nature, in other words, is as a blessing or a curse, and we saw that in all the references that we just ran through. They can, be, they can be God's treasuries from where he dispenses blessed amounts of rain for crops or enough water to flood, flood the planet in worldwide judgment. And it's absolutely awe-inspiring that the Lord can so easily collect these waters and suspend them in the atmosphere and finally release them at will by means of his powerful word. And it's just... All illustrations break down, right? But it's like just as easy as a child scoops up water with his toy bucket that the Lord scoops up all these massive amounts of water into his storehouses during creation week. The psalmist is painting a vivid picture for us in our mind's eye of the Lord's awesome creative power and then the progressive sequence in which he created. And, and really, we should be awestruck over our creator's divine power. This is awe-inspiring. We should be praising God because of his sovereign power and because in the midst of all of that going on in creation week, because of his attention to detail. This isn't just on a macro level. This is on a micro, very micro level. And here it is. During creation week, he was and is mindful of you. Mindful of you during all that creation I mean, as, as he was doing all this, he knew it was going to be recorded, did he not? He knew that you were going to be reading it thousands of years later, did he not? And his in, he has his intent for his word in your heart as well. While all that was going on, he was mindful of us. That's amazing. That's astounding. Me, a little ant on this planet, he's mindful of? Yeah, he's mindful. Absolutely. He is an awesome God, and since we are dealing with a being this powerful, what should our response be to him? What should our response be? The psalmist doesn't leave us to, to guess, to wander. We have our third, our third outline point, where he tells us the Lord's expectations. Verse 8, read with me, please. Let all the earth fear the Lord, Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. 
So this third worship-inducing truth is displayed in the Lord's expectation, his expectation. Considering all that came before, the psalmist is now compelled to reveal what God expects through his petition to God. So as he's praying to God, we're listening and learning. So in verses 6 through 7, the psalmist was describing creation and the creator. Now in verse 8, he moves to prescribing the proper response to the creator. And look with me in the first half of verse 8. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the earth fear the Lord. The verb let fear has the meaning of let all the earth begin to shake. Let all the earth begin to shake. If something's supposed to begin happening, that means that it has not happened yet, right? This is the psalmist's desire and his expectation, which reflects the Lord's desire and expectation that the earth should shake at the thought of God's awesome authority and power. The earth should be afraid of the Lord. The psalmist is petitioning the Lord to see to it that all the earth properly fears him, and he's simultaneously, in his petition, prescribing the proper response for his readers. So the question is, if this is to be the response, what does it mean that all the earth is supposed to shake at the thought of the Lord? What exactly does that mean? What does that look like? I'm going to start by telling you what this does not mean. It, it does not, this isn't talking about a global earthquake. This is also not a personification of the earth. This is not talking about the actual earth shaking. So what is it talking about? Well, this is, this is the beginning of synonymous parallelism, which, which is what we would call it, uh, where the thought of the first half of the verse is repeated in a slightly different way in the second half of the verse. The significance of that to us is that the inhabitants of the world in the second half of the verse is specifically identifying what the psalmist was referring to when he wrote earth in the first half of verse 8. So, so the second half defines what he meant for us to understand in the first half. So it's the inhabitants of the world, people, us, of the earth that are to fear the Lord. Furthermore, the text says mankind is to stand in awe of him. Okay, so we know that because of the Lord's sovereign might that we are to fear him to the point that we, that we shake. But what exactly does it mean to stand in awe of him? And this is very important for you to know because we need to have the proper response to the Lord. This verb is used in our verse, this verb used in our verse only occurs 10 times in the entire Old Testament. Don't worry about writing these references down. There's, I'm just going to run through them again. In Numbers 22.3, Deuteronomy 1.17.32.27, and Hosea 10.5, it means to fear. Deuteronomy 18.22, Job 19.29, and 41.17, it's rendered be afraid. In 1 Samuel 18.15, it means to dread, to dread something. In Psalm 22:24, in our verse, it's rendered, stand in awe. So this verse can express, this verb, excuse me, can express both fear associated, and here's the important part, fear associated with terror and 
fear associated with the, with the reverence and awe of worship. Be either or, depending on the context. Our context is talking about the fear of reverence and awe associated with worship. This is, this is the kind of fear this is the kind of fear that is motivation that fuels our worship, our service to the Lord. This is not a freezing fear. This is not a fear of consequences alone without a thought of what we're doing to offend a holy God. It's, it's also not a fear that drives us, listen, from the Lord, away from him. It's a fear, it's an awe that drives us to the Lord. Two different fears, two different results. The psalmist is saying that because the Lord created our reality, that we should be quaking in our reverential boots and worshiping him. That is a high, high view of God where it ought to be. Much different than what our culture at large and many other cultures, much different than the way they view him. Our creator God is not our pal. He is not Mame fodder for social media. He isn't the guy upstairs I check in with every once in a while. That's not our God. Our God is, is not the missing piece in your life. He is your life. You don't add God to your life. He is your life. He made us and the earth upon which we stand. He gave you the air you're breathing, Right? the eyes out of what you're seeing, the ears out of what you're hearing, and the mind you're using to comprehend it all. He's our almighty creator and to be rightly feared, not trivialized. The very land we stand on and every breath that we are taking in right now as we speak was created by him and is therefore owned by him, and he can do with it what he pleases. We ought to be using what God has created in order to glorify him. God expects all of us, every one of us, inside this building and outside this building, to be doing that. So how are you doing with that expectation? How do you use the legs God gave you to walk upon the earth he created? Do you walk on God's earth to worship him and witness about him, or do you wander from him with the same legs he gave you? How do you use the air God made for you? Does your speech glorify God, or do you use his air to grumble and gossip about him and against other people that were created in his, in his image? Does the Lord's greatness and all that implies draw you to him, or does it drive you from him? Well, godly fear humbles the heart and draws you to him, to the Lord. Ungodly fear, or an irreverent lack of fear, hardens the heart and drives you from him. What are we to do? We are to stand in awe of him. We are to worship him because of who he is and what he's done. That's, where, that's what we're to do. That's what the psalmist is saying. Look with me uh, with, with the fourth point, verse 9. You must worship the Lord because of the Lord's control. And verse 9 says, For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. 
Fourth truth that should bring us to worshiping the Lord is his control. His control. In verse 9, the psalmist drives his point home by giving the reason we should be fearing and worshiping the Creator, and then he emphasizes his point by going one step further. Let's look at the first clause of verse 9. For he spoke and it was done. Or we could translate this maybe a little more precisely He spoke, then it became. He spoke, then it became. And at first glance, it seems like the psalmist is emphasizing the sequence of events that God spoke and then things began to exist. Uh, but when, ob- when observing verse 9's grammar and then its structure, it becomes more clear that his main emphasis is not on the sequence of events. That was verse 7, the sequence of events. But his emphasis here is on the one who caused those events. The psalmist is using grammatical techniques here in order to draw our attention to the Lord first. The Lord first, and then what he's done after that. Emphasis is on the Lord. In effect, he's saying, look at God. He's amazing. He's in control. Look at our God. Then look at what he's done, or or the fruit of his powerful control. The psalmist is blown away by God in, in that he simply used words to bring everything into existence. That is absolute divine control. We need tools and materials in order to fashion things. But God used only a word to create absolutely everything, including those tools we need to make things that we need. God spoke the creation, and then the, the, then the creation became Now look at the second clause of verse 9, and we'll we'll keep going here, and this will all come together. It says, he commanded, and it stood fast. This is a certain verb sequence being used to advance and intensify the imagery as, as we read through the verse. In the first half of the verse, the Lord spoke. Then in the second half, we see that when the Lord speaks, it's a command. The psalmist is bringing our attention to the fact that the Lord's command ordered the creation of the universe. And furthermore, all the Lord has to do is command and things he created continue to stand in the exact same way he ordered them to stand in the first place. The Lord spoke everything into existence and he can command it to behave in a specified fashion and it does. I want to make some observations here. These aren't other points, just observations within this this one point. First, when God created the cosmos and and all its bodies, he assigned them by way of command certain parameters of operation. For example, giving off heat, uh, the shining of light that he he attached to them, and a lifespan for the different bodies in the universe. Some would say that's Mother Nature. We hear that all the time. But the Bible says that's God's sustaining control over his work. God created the natural laws that allow us to observe his creation, which exists by according to other natural laws that he created. And he created them all by way of his commanding control. God gave the stars and planets orders and rules concerning how to exist, and they all obey his command. The same goes for the oceans of the sea, his command and control, his command controls it all. In Job 38, 8 through 11, God said that it was he who brought forth 
the sea. He placed boundaries on it. He tells it how far to rise. He commands where its waves stop. God sustains all his creation by way of his command. And I want us to get an idea of the extent of this control. This goes down so far, it's hard to fathom. Did you know that Coulomb's law of mutual repulsion between objects tells us that like charges of electricity and magnetism repel each other? And here's a quote from an author speaking to this law and how it works. He says, This law is at work in the nucleus of every atom, trying hard to destroy it from within because of all the positively charged protons living inside, or living side by side. And he quotes other authors within his quote. Carl Darrell, Darrell, physicist with the Bell Labs in New York City, said this. These nuclei have no right to be alive at all. In fact, they never should have been created. And if they were created, they should have been blown up instantly. Yet there they are. George Gamow, professor of physics at George Washington University, said, and listen to this, every object is a potential nuclear explosive without being blown to bits. Every object. You're an object, by the way. So, so the question is, how is all this staying together? What, what's holding this stuff together? He goes on to say, scientists call it nuclear glue. Doesn't sound very technical, does it? It's some kind of second force holding everything together. They don't know. They don't know what's holding everything together. But we have an answer for them, don't we? Colossians 1, verses 16 to 17, Paul says of Christ that in him all things were created. And he goes on to say in him all things hold together. Even the atoms that should be exploding are held together because of the Lord. Hebrews 1.3 says, He upholds, and this is all present tense, He upholds all things by the word of his power. What's keeping everything in the universe from exploding? It's not nuclear glue. It's the Lord's control holding it all together holding you all together. Why aren't you blowing up right now? Lord's control. I ask you, is that alone not praiseworthy? You're alive simply because Christ is choosing to hold you together. That's it. Nothing you're doing is keeping you alive. Second observation, that God created anything at all displays some of his wondrous attributes. We could look in verse 5 of this chapter. It says that he loves righteousness and justice. Therefore, all that God commands is right and just. And you will remember on the sixth day of creation, after the Lord had commanded all creation into existence, he saw that it was all, what does it say? Very good. It was all very good. And it was all very good because it was all right and just, and it was all right and just because it came from a right and just source the Lord. The creation reflected the creator's attributes of righteousness and justice. And so now I think no wonder the psalmist says in verse 5 that the earth is full of his loving kindness. 
The earth is full of his loving kindness. He sees the reflection of the creator in the creation. Then there's the observation of relationship. The psalmist is overjoyed and full of praise because this goes far beyond the creation-creator picture. The psalmist creator hasn't just created him and gone hands off. He's, he's also brought him into covenant, into a covenant relationship with himself. Remember, he starts out by the word of the Lord, that's Yahweh, and then all through Yahweh's implied, all the way through 6, 7, 8, 9, and, and beyond that. And by the way, as a side note, Yahweh is exactly the title that Christ claimed for himself in John eight fifty eight. And we'll come back to that. Yahweh is the name that God uses with his people as their God of covenant, and it's used no less than 13 times in our psalm. Did you get that? The creator of all things declared his covenant love for his people 13 times in one psalm. God is saying, I love you 13 times in one psalm to his people. That's amazing. What a loving God. The God who can speak galaxies into existence and and gather global quantities of water into a heap and who keeps us from exploding is willing to have an intimate relationship with us? We don't have anything to offer him but our sin, right? Really? He's willing to have a relationship with us? Yes, really. And the question is, what are you doing with this glorious truth? What are you doing with this? Are you running toward him because of it? Or are you running away from him because, of, because you know in your heart that a covenant relationship with God includes submission to his control, the same control that he used to create everything? What's the response? The psalmist is answering the question of why all the earth should fear and worship the Lord. We should fear and worship the Lord And worship him because he is the one who made the universe and everything in it. The Lord is the one who has divine control over everything that he's he's created. He's created everything. He has control over it. If he's created it, he owns it, and he controls it, and that includes you. And that's where some of the hearts rebel. But that's where some of the other hearts rejoice and worship him. He's the one who keeps it all going. Makes no sense to rebel against that. Why would you rebel against the one who's keeping you alive and offering a covenant relationship with you? He's actually willing to be in a covenant relationship with people, with the likes of me, the likes of you. The Lord requires us to participate in an undeserved privilege. And I'll just close with this. He requires and expects us to worship him with our life because he is our creator and because he is willing to condescend in order to fellowship with even me, with even you. It's amazing. So how can you fulfill the privilege God requires of you? And this is the first step. Start by realizing you can't fulfill it. Not on your own. You can't fulfill it. God's standard of fulfillment requires you to be just as righteous and just as he is, and that's a problem because you're not. You aren't. However, because God is just and right, he has provided the answer to our problem, 
And we would say, Amen. His one and only Son, Jesus, the answer to our sin problem. He's provided the very Son who created you in order to die for you so that you could live for Him. His Son's death saves you from your sin problem. You need only to believe on Him and submit to Him to receive that forgiveness, to participate in the undeserved privilege of worshiping Him, to to be in intimate fellowship with God who created the reality that you know. Okay? What if you're already in the Lord? What do we do then? What What does living a life of worship look like? Well, a life of worship is manifested when a heart of worship is realized. I'm just going to repeat that. A life of worship is manifested when a heart of worship is realized. And a heart of worship is submitted to our creator and covenant God. You have a heart that's submitted, you will live a life that's submitted. It's a submitted will, the motives and the intentions, the desires of our heart to his control with joy to the control of a good and gracious, merciful creator with joy. When thinking about our Lord and observing his creation, it really ought to cause our heart to sing the mighty power of God, should it not? When we are to have hearts of worship, regardless of circumstances, even when those tempests in life blow, knowing that my God is in control over even those tempests. In fact, he created them for my good, his glory. We are to worship him because he's worthy of it, because of what he's done, and because he's willing to love even you and me. This is what was in the psalmist's mind as he wrote this psalm. Let it remain in ours, and let's pray. And the men will come up for the elements. Heavenly Father, thank you for who you are, for what you've done. You've created not only our reality, but you've seen to it that your creation points back to you, the glorious creator. You made it. You sustain it. You made us. You sustain us. And you gave us the ability to observe what you created, which points back to you. And not only that, you then made it possible for us to be in covenant relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And you even revealed how to do that in your word, which we just talked about and considered today. You've given us absolutely everything. We have no excuse. Let our response be one of worshiping you and sharing the news about you with others, just as our psalmist is doing with us. Amen.